Welcome everyone, good evening. Thank you for joining us. This is a class on a series we have been teaching on the book Tomer Dvoira by the great Kabbalist uh, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero from Sfat about 500 years ago. But uh, tonight the topic is gonna, the, the virtue is there are 13 virtues. Tonight we're holding the virtue number nine. And because in this virtue, virtue means to say we should try to incorporate the way God acts towards other people, the way he acts towards us. But the main aspect of this virtue, he's going to bring a prophecy of Daniel. So I thought, you know what, let's focus on that. I, th I think it's going to be a very, very interesting prophecy. And definitely it completely relates to what's going on nowadays, what's happening in the world, in the United States, in Israel. And, uh, and I think it's going to be very interesting, please God. Daniel, it's uh, one of the last prophets. He lived in between the destruction of the first temple and the rebuilding of the second temple. And to him, God revealed the prophecies was going to happen from his time all the way until the resurrection of the dead. Actually, his prophecies are very cryptic, very uh, hidden. It's not so simple to understand what he says. He brings actually dates when Mashiach is coming. But the bad news, no, nobody really understands what those dates mean. Even the great uh, commentaries, Rashi, Ramban, and even the more recent ones, they try to understand and decipher what are the dates of Daniel. But so far, nobody has succeeded in really come exactly to the date when Mashiach is coming. But one, one thing we can see, we're going to speak about it tonight, at least as we see what's unfolding in the world, we're going to see we're getting very, very close. You know, uh, when you hide the afikoimen and the kids look for it and you tell them you're getting warm, warmer, warmer, warm, you're boiling, and then they found the afikoimen. We can definitely say <laughs> we're getting warmer and warming and warmer. So uh, we should be ready for that. So let's a little bit introduce how the Tomer Tvora uh, explains this virtue and then go straight into the book of Daniel and then current events. So he's explained a virtue called Hashem, I cast all their sins, meaning to say whatever the Jewish people do, do, do we do wrong, into the depth of the sea. So what he explains is that everything bad that the Jewish people do Hashem goes out of his way, so to say, and makes it disappear. He doesn't want it to still be hanging out over here. He explained before about the consequences of sinning, of doing the wrong thing. It's not only the person morally, he's doing something wrong, and he's, that's going to affect him for the future, but there's a spiritual reality. And whenever a person or whenever the Jewish people do something wrong, 
they create a negative impact into the spiritual realms. And that spiritual negativity needs to be erased. The best way would be through repentance, through tshuva. But sometimes not everybody does tshuva, or sometimes there are sins so bad that you need more than just teshuva. And one of the big uh, aids to help to get rid of the negativity, he's going to bring it is Yom HaKippur. Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement, is really a spiritual cleansing of all the negativity caused throughout the year. And nowadays it's very sad, hopefully soon we'll go back to the temple. But in the days of the temple, he brings over here. Uh, can you hear me? There's, can you hear me? Okay. In the days of the temple, there was a procedure that spiritually will atone for all the negativity. And actually, Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. And that was on through the Kohen Gadol. All the process, what the Torah says that the Kohen Gadol has to do in Yom Kippurim was the spiritual cleansing of all this negativity. The Torah the Torah now is going to point out to a specific thing the Kohen Gadol would do. He would bring two goats, and actually it's an expression, the goat the goat of atonement. You say, I know in English you have a different word for it, but it really, in, in, in Hebrew, the content, even in Spanish, is called that goat that expiates, that atones for all the negativity. So the coin gather would bring two goats, they were just the same, they looked one just like the other, like twin almost. And then he would, he would throw lots, and one of these goats would be offered as a sacrifice and brought into the altar and do the atonement inside of the temple of the Beit HaMikdash. And the Torah calls that goat the goat for Hashem. It's going to be elevated a little bit Kabbalistically to God. But then the second one that I just mentioned would be taken to a place called Azazel, which really means like a cliff. And before that goat would be sent to the cliff, after the first goat that I mentioned was already brought into the Beit HaMikdash, then the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, will, will, uh, will confess all the sins of the Jewish people, and would ask Hashem to forgive the Jewish people. And then a person would take that goat, would walk many, many kilometers outside of Jerusalem to a cliff. He would carry with him a woolen scarlet color, like red color of wool. And then he would cut it into two. One side, one part of that woolen um, scarlet, he would tie it into a rock and the other one he would tie it around the neck of the goat and he would push the goat down the cliff and by the goat falling down and uh, dying 
that would be an atonement for the Jewish people. And miraculously, that woolen, that scarlet woolen uh, piece that was tied into a stone would miraculously turn from scarlet, from red, to white. Because in the scripture, God compares the sins with the color red and the forgiveness of the skins like the white of the snow or the white of the wool. So by turning white was a sign that God had forgiven the Jewish people from all of the sins of the year. So the Talmud Dvor explains Kabbalistically, how can it be? Is that fair that the Jewish people do something wrong and they just you send over there? You know, that is the concept today of doing kaparot. Some people take a hen, a rooster, and just before Yom Kippurim, they do the kapara with the poor chicken. So how does that work? So over here, the Talmud Dvar explains Kabbalistically that in a way, there's a reality of getting rid of sin. Again, of the impact, the negative impact of the sin. The word goat in Hebrew, seir, is a reference to the Yetzer Ara, to the Satan, to the evil inclination. Says in the Talmud that this Satan, this evil inclination, does three jobs, but it's the same entity. Is the Yetzer Ara, is the one that entices, that come to people and try, tries to get us to do the wrong thing on an individual level, on a national level, that is the Yetzirah. Then the same entity is called the Satan. Satan is the prosecutor. After a person or the Jewish people sins, then this entity comes in front of God and tells him, look what they did, <clears throat> you should punish them. He prosecutes <clears throat> and accuses us. And then the same entity is the Moloch Amabes, is the angel of death. And he's given permission to come and to punish people. So what happens in Yom Kippurim, Hashem in a way says to the Satan, listen guy, if the Jewish people did wrong things, it's really because of you. I mean, I created you to do that, but in essence, they are good people. But you constantly confuses them. You know, the Talmud says the word Hasatan, you know, every letter in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew alphabet is like Texaclav value, it's called Gematria. So the word Hasatan, the letters is 364. Says the Talmud, the average year, the solar year, we know, is 365 days a year. So the Talmud says, the word Asatan is 364 because one day a year he cannot act. That is Yom Kippurim. We are free from him. So God tells him in that day, his holiday, you know what? Go and take for you a korban. Take for you a sacrifice. So this is very mystical and let's not misunderstand it. That one of the goats goes to God and the other one, so to say, is the bribery that goes to the Satan. You work hard throughout the whole year, take a bribe and give them a break. So that 
animal goat of Lazazel, in a way, he already incorporated all the sins of the Jewish people that at the end of the day were created by the Satan, by the Yetzirah. And Hashem gives that to the Satan, have a good lunch, and take all the negativity that you created and keep it with you. And in this process, God cleanses all the negativity of the Jewish people. So the virtue that he's describing in now, the ninth virtue, is that, that the good is going to have permanence, but all the negativity is going to be destroyed. And on those lines, he explains, and now we're going to go into the prophecy of Daniel. So what happened, if you, if you go into the book of Daniel, if you have a Tanakh handy, you can go to Daniel chapter 2. If you go to the R scroll Tanakh, I'm going to tell you the page 1779. So just to introduce to you what happened with this prophecy. We're dealing with the king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He's the one that destroyed the first temple and brought to exile <clears throat> the Jewish people. He was a very powerful king. He conquered the whole Middle East over there and North of Africa. And he became very, very uh, powerful and he, he ruled over the entire world. One night he had a dream, just like in the story, the famous story of Yosef, that Pharaoh had a dream. So, but he also, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And when he woke up, he was very, very moved, very anguished, very um, disturbed. Because he knew this, this dream was a very deep dream. But two things. First of all, he couldn't even remember the dream. And secondly, obviously he didn't even know the meaning of the dream. So just like Paolo did in the famous story with Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar called all his advisors. So they bring over here the necromancers and the magicians and the astrologers and the wise people, everybody. And he tells them, listen guys, I had a dream, but I don't even know what was the dream and I don't know the meaning of it. So you need to come and tell me what was the dream and what was the meaning of the dream. If you do that, I'm going to give you wealth and honor and power. You're going to be unbelievably great. And if you don't, I'm going to cut you into pieces, you and your families. Everything's going to be lost. Everybody panicked. So they told him, listen, king, tell us a dream and we'll tell you the meaning of the dream. So then Nebuchadnezzar told him, listen, guys, don't play, don't play games with me. And <laughs> you're going to sit with this king, you couldn't play any games. Don't be wise, don't be smart. Tell me the dream and tell me the meaning of the dream. And they again told him, listen, nowhere no, in history, it never happened before that somebody expects somebody else to know what they dreamt. You have to tell us the dream and then we're going to come with explanation. And he said, listen, I already told you, I don't even remember the dream. So either you tell me the dream and the meaning 
Oh, your days are counted. Everybody panicked. Nobody knew what to do. And he started killing one by one, one after the other, all these people. By then, Daniel, he was a descendant of King David. And on parenthesis, the Talmud says, if Mashiach would be like somebody that already died, to whom he would be like? And says the Talmud, like Daniel. He was an unbelievable person, unbelievable prophet. I highly recommend follow the book of Daniel. It's very, very interesting. So he was a descendant of King David. That when the first temple was destroyed, he was taken in captivity into Babylon. And him, together with other great tzaddikim, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were all taken to be people in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And they knew about the dream, and they were, they were about to be called to tell the king the meaning of the dream. So they fasted. And they dive into Hashem, please Hashem, <laughs> what are we going to do? And Hashem on his mercy, he told Daniel the dream and the meaning of the dream. And this dream is unbelievable, not only because of Nebuchadnezzar, this is going to take us, take us from then up until the end of history. So let me read to you just this part of the dream and the meaning of the dream. It's unbelievable. Chapter 2, verse 31. So he said like this. Sorry about that. You, O king, were watching and behold a huge statue. This statue, which was immense and whose brightness was extraordinary, stood opposite you. And its appearance was fearsome. This statue its head of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of copper, its legs of iron, and its feet partially of iron and partially of earthenware. So this is a huge statue. As you watched, a stone was hewn without hands, Meaning to say, nobody was hewing the stone. It happened on its own. And all of a sudden, this stone struck the statue on its feet of iron and earthenware and crumbled them. Then they crumbled together the iron, the earthenware, the copper, the silver, and the gold. And everything became agurnished. They became like chaff from summer from summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, and no trace was found of them. And the stone that struck the, the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This is the dream, and we will tell its interpretation before the king. So by then you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, how astonished he was that Daniel knew exactly the dream. You are king, to whom the king of kings, Hashem, who is the God of heaven, has given a strong kingdom, power, and honor. And wherever people, beasts of the field, 
and birds of the sky dwell, he has given them into your hand and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So now he's going to put the dream into the meaning of it. The statue had a head of gold. Who is that? What does that represent? That is you, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. You are the head of gold, but after you will rise another kingdom inferior to you. And then another, a third kingdom of copper. So just like the metals, the value diminishes. So the kingdoms coming after Babylon will be also of a lesser quality than yours. Then another, a third kingdom of copper, which will rule the whole earth. Then a fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, just as iron crumbles and flattens everything. And as iron shatters all this, it would crumble and shatter. The feet and the toes that you saw, partial of potter's earthenware and partial of iron, it will be divided, a divided kingdom. I will explain all this in a minute, please God. And we'll have some of the firmness of iron, just as you saw iron mixed with clay, like earthenware. As for the toes, partially of iron, partially of earthenware, part of the kingdom will be powerful, and part of it will be broken. That you saw iron mixed with clay-like earthenware, they will mix with the offspring of men, but they will not cling to one another, just, like, uh, just as iron does not mix with earthenware. Then, in the days of these kingdoms, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will its sovereignty be left to another people. It will, be crumble, and co it will crumble and consume all these kingdoms and will stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was hewn from the mountain, not by, human hand, not by human hands, and it crumbled the iron, the copper, the earthenware, the silver, and the gold. So has the great God made known to the king what will, ha what will happen in the future. The deem is true, and his interpretation is reliable. Then I won't continue. You can take a look over there how Nebuchadnezzar was blown up out, by, blown away by Daniel, he gave him honor and uh, money and everything. So what is the meaning of this dream? And why to use dif these different metals? The morale of Prague, the great Kabbalist also of the 16th century in Prague, the one that is Ali and that he built a golem, a human being, he explains, he has, he has many books on many topics. One of them is on Hanukkah. And over there he brings this mitrash, and also further in the book of Daniel, he also has a prophecy related to the same four kingdoms and then the fifth one. So the Marala Prague explains, based on a mitrash and the oral Torah, that if you go to the beginning of the book of Genesis, at the very, very beginning, in the verse number two, you're going to find over there that it says, Breshit at the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And then in verse number two, take a look later on, it describes the state of the earth. And it was tov, 
To means anarchy. Vo means emptiness. Tova vo. So before everything in creation, there was just anarchy and void, emptiness, the choshech and darkness, al Teom, and the depth in the abyss of the waters. But the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And, and that is the second verse. So the Midrash explains that we find four expressions of something negative. Again, anarchy, void or emptiness, darkness, and then the depth of the abyss, of the waters. So these are four elements of imperfection that from the very beginning of creation were placed by God as a challenge for people and as a way of people to rectify creation. And if Adam, Arishan and Eve, they would have not eaten from forbidden fruit, they themselves would rectify these problems. Take a look how it says in the Garden of Eden, there were four rivers that were coming out of the, of, of, of the river in the, in, the, in the root of the Garden of Eden. So these rivers that came out of the, Garden of, of the Garden of Eden represent those four imperfections. They, they could have been fixed by Adam and Eve, but they didn't. The only one that started bringing anything into rectification was Avram Avinu. And from Abraham came the Jewish people. And from the Jewish people, they went into the land, and then they had kings. And King Solomon, King Shlomo, he built the first temple. And when he built the first temple, there was the glory of the world. It was unbelievable. Everybody could see God, could completely believe and know that there's a God, and he's running the show. And that could have been the final rectification of the world, what we would have called the Mashiach, and that's it. Everything would be nice forever and ever. Happy ending. But King Solomon was tested. He made mistakes. And from that, it became a decline in spirituality. And finally, that decline reached after 410 years, when the people couldn't, like God couldn't tolerate anymore, the wrong that the Jewish people were, were doing. And that's why he decided to destroy the temple. So who destroyed the temple? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So they took away the power of God through the Jewish people and took it into themselves. What is the meaning of the gold and the silver and the copper and the iron and the earthenware? We find when the temple was built, even when the Mishkan, the tabernacle was built, they used all these beautiful metals. We see in the Mishkan, the Torah says, they brought the donations. Don't forget donations, please donate to Esha Torah. The donations of gold and silver and copper, all that was used in the temple to serve God, both in the Mishkan and also in the, in, in the, in the, in the temple. King David, it says, he was able to accumulate a lot of gold and silver and copper. 
Each one of these metals, they represent something. Gold, which is the highest of the metals, is irachamayim, the fear of God. So when people went into the temple and saw the gold, it was impressing. It created awe in the people when they saw the gold. So the, the gold of the Beit Amikdash of the temple was to inspire awe of God and a fear of God. Then the silver. Silver has to do with love. So all the silver of the temple was to inspire the Jewish people for the love of God. Then copper. Copper was used in the, in the place where the Kohanim would wash their hands in the morning when we're doing the service of the temple. So it was the purity that they had by serving God in the temple. And the iron, which was also used by King David and King Solomon for the temple, it was the strength. When came Nebuchadnezzar and he destroyed the first temple, he gathered all the gold not only of Israel, but of the entire world. It's unbelievable how much gold he was able to get into himself. And everything else, silver and copper and everything else. But what they did is they took something, as I explained, that was supposed to be to serve God, to serve, instead of serving God, to serve themselves. If you look in chapter 3, after Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the meaning of the dream, what did he do? You would have expected for him to do tshuva and, and try to get close to God. But that's not the case. What did he do? He wanted to go with the kunz. He built a huge statue of gold from feet to head. <clears throat> and he forced <clears throat> everybody to bow down to his statue. He thought, oh, I'm going to be clever, more clever than God and, and Daniel. He thought, if in the dream I'm the head of gold and everything is going to get crumbled, maybe I'm going to make a whole statue of gold, not only the head, and that is going to give Babylon endurance and my kingship will endure forever. I'm going to make everybody bow down to the gold, to the statue, to me. So the first of the empires, empires, I'm sorry, the exiles, they took the gold, they took the fear of God, and instead of fear of God, they tried to make it into the fear of people, of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And that actually led, says the Talmud, for the decree of God to let Haman in the next empire to make a decree to exterminate the Jewish people. Says the Talmud, what did the Jewish, what did the Jewish people did wrong to deserve to be exterminated by such a harsh decree of a man? And the Gemara says, because they bowed down to the statue of, eh, of, eh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Instead of having fear of God, now they bent to the fear of a person, to the gold of Babylon. Then he came Persia. Persia took over from Babylon. And that was the story of Purim with Ahasuerus. 
What was the nature of Persia? Pleasures, pleasures, physical pleasures. Look at the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther. It describes what the Persians were all about. Ahasuerus, just into money, into pleasures. How did he choose his wife, the, the queen? He made a contest, Miss Universe. And he took the most pretty lady to be his wife. I mean, that's how you choose a queen? Just because she looks pretty to you? She didn't ask if she came from royalty, if she had uh, the qualities to be a queen. No! She was a pretty girl. Let her as a queen. So that was Persia. So going back to the silver of the temple. The silver represents love of God. But you can channel that love of God and instead of being love of God, it became love of physical pleasures. And that is Persia. And the second reason why, says the Talmud, the Jewish people initially, they, it was decreed that a man can make a decree to exterminate the Jewish people. One was that they bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But the second one was that they went to the mill that Ahasuerus made a banquet. And they should have not gone. Actually, Mordechai told them, don't go to that banquet. Everything is just to get you to do the wrong thing. But they didn't, they didn't listen to Mordechai and they went to the banquet. So those two scenes together, they were the cause of the decree of uh, Purim of Amman. But then, as we know from the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther, the story of Purim, the Jewish people did tshuva through Mordechai, through Esther. They repented, and that gave them the merit to send away the decree of a man and also to rectify those two mistakes. So by that explains the morale of Prague. When they rectified those two mistakes, then Going back to the beginning of, of Genesis, Tovavo, the anarchy represented by Babylon and the emptiness represented by Persia, they were able to fix it. And that's why they were able to go back and rebuild the temple. So they built the second temple and then came the third empire, Alexander the Great of Macedonia, of Greece. And he conquered everybody, Babylon and Persia, and he took over the entire world. And initially, he made a very good uh, covenant and relationship with the Jewish people. And everything was okay. But slowly but surely, now the Jewish people started following all the Greek culture. And the Greeks represent the most intellectual aspect of Humanity, look all the Greek culture, sport, art, economics, politics. So the Jewish people thought, wow, this is it, right? Modernity, technology, technology, science. So many of Jewish people, many of the Jews became very Hellenistic, very Greek. And that brought to a decline of the spirituality of the Jewish people. And that's when the Greeks took over in a way that they made many decrees 
to try to eradicate the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot in the Jewish people. And then was the miracle of Hanukkah, as we all know by a family, the Hashmonaim, they stood up the Maccabim and they fought against the Greeks and Hashem made a huge, not a huge, hundreds of huge miracles and unbelievable, very few Jews were able to defeat hundreds of thousands of powerful Greeks. And with that, they were able to fix that mistake. Going back to the verse of Genesis, the third element of negativity is called Choshech, darkness. Because the Greeks came with a culture that it seems to be very enlightening. But the problem with that culture is, yeah, it's very nice. Art and sports and all that is very good. But when you use that against spirituality, then it becomes darkness. When you make the goal of life to make money, when you make the goal of life just sports or art or anything as a goal, but not as means for something higher, then it becomes darkness. So by the Maccabim, the Hashmonaim, conquering the Greeks, they were able to rectify the darkness of Greece. And there was a third element, as we say in the verse, Tov Avov Choshech. Anarchy, void, and darkness. The Jewish people were able to rule for a period as the Hashmonaim became the kings of the Jewish people in the time of the Second Temple. And then it started the Machlekes, Oigevalt. That is the worst of the worst. When one starts fighting against the other. Two of the descendants of the Hashmonaim brothers, they fought who should be the next king. And one remained in Jerusalem, the other one was outside of Jerusalem. So be able to fight against his brother, he made an alliance with the Romans. And together with the Romans, he went and fought his brother, and he is the one that brought the Romans into the land of Israel. And once the Romans went in, they came to stay. That is the fourth empire. Oh, but let me just say something about the third empire, the copper. What is the copper? Copper is purity as the vessels that were used in the days of Mikdash for cleaning the Kranim, the hands and the feet of the Kranim. So the Greeks not only oppose that the Jewish people should keep Torah mitzvot, but the Greeks impurify everything holy of the Jewish people. The Timu Kolashmanim, they impurify all the oils. They, make a de- they made a decree that every kala, every bride, needed to go the first night on her wedding to the general of the Greeks, just to defile them. You could imagine a Kala getting married and she's taken by one of the general, by the Greek generals to be defiled by him. All that was to defile is the opposite of the copper, of the purity of the Jewish people. This is the defilement of the Kedusha, of the Tyra, of the purity of the Jewish people. But then that was gone. Then comes the Romans. And the Romans, iron. What is iron? Strength. The Romans weren't that, that very educated, not like the Greeks. The Talmud says, even after the, Ro- the Romans took over, but they kind of left the Greek culture to be their culture. So 
they represent the strength. So going back to the dream of, of Nebuchadnezzar, so history goes from up down. The head of the negative, the gold that thought he was going to be the head of humanity against God, and they went into the, into the breast, they went into the lower part of the body, and then the feet. The feet was the island of Rome. Rome also is all the West, all the culture of Europe and the West, including now United States of America. And it's in the verse of Breshit of Genesis, the depth of the abyss, because it's a very long empire. empire. It takes almost 2,000 years, they're still in power, because the, all the values of the West, they're rooted in both, in Greece and in Rome. So this is an extension of them. But then we have in the feet and in the toes, we have earthenware. Who is the earthenware? Islam, the Arabs. For two reasons, the Arabs are not considered one of the four empires, one of the exiles. One of them is because they didn't take the kingship from the Jewish people. But all the previous four, they took the kingship, same from King Solomon, went to Babylon, from Babylon went to uh, Persia, from Persia to Greece, and from Rome. The Arabs didn't take the kingship from the Jewish people. And also, says the Maral of Prague, they are related to the second kingdom, which is Persia. So it's very interesting. These two, this is the feet of the statue, which is the end of history, until finally, at the end of history, is going to be the rock that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the dream, that is going to come and is going to destroy everything, and that is the only thing that's going to exist forever. And that rock is the Mashiach. We are now in what is called Ikvesa de Mashiach. Ikvesa is from the is in Aramaic, but from the Hebrew word Ekev. Ekev means the hill, the bottom of the foot. So going into this image of a person in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the last part when the Mashiach is gonna come is gonna be in the feet of the statue. That is the time of the Mashiach. The Mashiach is a king. He's going to be a descendant of King David, and he's going to be a person of unbelievable moral and spiritual level, even of prophecy. And he's going to lead humanity to do the right thing. And that is going to end with all the previous imperfections of the world. And that is what the verse says, that the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. That is the Mashiach, that we have second verse of Genesis, four elements of imperfection, but at the end it comes the Mashiach to rectify all the previous imperfections. Very interesting, says the Talmud, listen to this. Going back to what the Maral of Prague said, that the Arabs are connected to Persia. And Persia, nowadays is Iran. It was relatively recent 
that they changed their name for political reasons from Persia to Iran, but up until the 20th century, the name of Iran was still Persia. So, says the Talmud that at the end of days, at the time of the Mashiach, there's going to be a war between the West, between Edom, as we explain, which is Rome, and Persia. Isn't that interesting? The Talmud says, this is the Gemara, at the beginning of the Gemara in Yoma, the Gemara of Yoma Kippurim brings that there's going to be the two nations at the end, the West fighting against Iran. So just follow the news, what's going on. Iran is getting more and more hectic against America, and America is very strongly emphasizing the embargo on, on, uh, on uh, I said weaponry, arms, against Iran, and also to stop them from developing an atomic bomb. So it might come very soon, and somehow, well, the Talmud says that the West is going to fight against Iran. And the Talmud says that the West is going to win. At the end of days, when Mashiach comes, the West, which is, again, the Catholic Christian world, is going to fight against the Islam, the Arab world, and they're going to prevail. And after that, Mashiach is going to come. How that is going to happen? That there's two prophecies in the Tanakh, in the, in the prophets, in the written Torah. One in the prophet Ezekiel, Yechezkel, chapters 38 and 39. The other one is in the prophet Zechariah, Zacharias, in chapter 14. And they describe the word, the, the war at the end of days which is called the War of Gog and Magog. Gog is the name of a king. Magog is the name of a nation. We don't know who is a nation, but we do know that that is one of the nations of the West. So in that war, it can happen, according to some opinions, in two different ways. Because in the prophecy of Yehezkel, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, it brings more like a war between some of the nations against some other nations. And after that war, they're going to come to the land of Israel, and Hashem is going to reveal himself, and he's going to destroy all the armies of Magog and kill their king Gog. So there are those who explain that if the Jewish people, we have a good merit and Mashiach is going to come in good terms, the way Mashiach is going to come at the end of days is going to be, as I explained, the West fighting against Persia. And then if they want to come against us, God is going to appear to destroy them. And the Jewish people is going to be spared, is going to be saved from any negativity, from anything bad happening to them. But if we don't deserve it, God forbid, then Mashiach can come the way described in Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah. Over there he describes all the nations gathering 
against Jerusalem, to fight against the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Over there is more of a negative, hectic prophecy against Israel. It says that they're going to take over Jerusalem and half of the city is going to be taken captive for nine months and only after Hashem is going to reveal himself and in a similar way end up with our enemies and the Mashiach is going to come. So we see that Mashiach can come in two different ways. In a nicer way, when only the, the nations fight once against the other and then God reveals himself or they can come and they're going to want to come and fight against Jerusalem. Let's look at current events. It's unbelievable. So, from one hand, we have all the people that hate the Jewish people and all those who hate the state of Israel, which is one, to say that, oh, we love the Jews, but we hate the state of Israel. It's a bunch of nonsense because it's, we're one. So, if you hate the state of Israel, you hate the Jews. And if you hate the Jews, you hate the state of Israel. So all of those people see what's going on in the news. They're telling Netanyahu, don't dare to do the annexation of the West Bank. If you do an annexation of Jerusalem, the East Jerusalem and the Jordan Valley and all that, we're going to come against you. So we see the enemies of Israel standing against Israel as the prophecy of Zechariah. From the other hand, in our side, we have, so far, Trump, as the President of the United States, taking sides with Israel. But what we see lately, the way I perceive it, is the current events are developing like a pendulum. Why? Because Israel is going better and worse depending how the world relates to Israel. During, can you hear me? During the eight years of Obama, the pendulum took a side to the left very negatively against Israel, sorry, and against the world. If you look at the mess in the Middle East, we can give a Yeshar Koyach to President Obama. He took away Gaddafi from Libya. Look at the mess. He created Libya. Now, as you know, Turkey and Egypt might go into war because of the mess of Libya. He almost did a complete mess in Egypt when he took uh, Mubarak out of to be, to be the president and the uh, Muslim Brotherhood was in charge. Uh, Hashem had mercy on us and he reversed that. But he allowed Iran to get stronger at the beginning of his presidency, Obama, there was a whole revolt in Iran and Iran and, and Obama didn't support the people against the regime. And then, as we know, he did the nuclear deal, which would have been a crazy thing. And he gave billions of, of dollars to the regime. And then because of that, look at Syria. Look at the mess of Syria. How many people died? How many people were went out of Syria, that is a big Yesharkoyach to Mr. Obama. And at the end of his period to be a president, he almost passed 
a very this he did pass one very negative uh, resolution in the Security Council of the UN, declaring that the fact that Israel has control over all those territories of the borders of 1967 is illegal. That was Mr. Obama, Yishekoyach. And then he wanted to make a second uh, resolution, would have been even worse. And it was just published a couple of weeks ago that Netanyahu called Putin, the president of Russia, to stop that resolution and Putin agreed and because of that Obama didn't send it. Otherwise it could have been even worse. So we look at those eight years of Obama's administration like a pendulum going up left and he could have been really Gog. He could have been this negative king with demagogue. But then miraculously God placed Mr. Trump to be the president of the United States. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he's a nice person, not a nice person, I would invite him for a Chavez meal or not. I'm saying his policies are very pro-Israel. Look what he did with the embassy in Jerusalem, with declaring the Golan Heights part of Israel, and many other things uh, going out of the nuclear deal of Obama with Iran and so forth. But where are we holding now? Today, July 1st, look at America. America is a mess. And what is the root of the mess? Because all this negativity, the, 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 the people that don't believe in God, the people that don't believe in morality, and the people that hate Israel, and the people that love all the enemies, all the Arab enemies of Israel, they're getting together because they don't want Trump to be in government. The left, if you read about it, if you look in the news, there's everything is about anarchy, to be liberals, to break a, a, any single rule of morality. And because Trump was doing very good, the, the, the country was doing good, but now came the COVID-19, the virus, and the economy went down. So we have elections in America. They have election November 3rd. So they are trying... Everything they can is like, if with the last chance, not to let again Trump to be president for another four years. So we see this pendulum that it went from Obama to the right with more strength in pro of the Jewish people. But now, in November, if the left wins the election to be a president, majority in Senate and majority in the House, and they have the power, this pendulum is going to go very strongly to the left and very high. And if that happens, God forbid, you can just see all these left and liberal people going against Israel, God forbid. So we are now in a few months in a balance. Which way can it take for the Mashiach to come? Is it going to come in the nice way, according to Ezekiel? Or God forbid, is going to come everybody fighting against the Jewish people in Jerusalem? So, let's daven, let's ask for Hashem to have Rachmanos, to have mercy on the Jewish people, and to place the right leaders in the world, especially in America, and also to place the right leaders in Israel 
to help them to make the right decisions and hopefully to see the coming of the Mashiach in the nicest and most peaceful and most merciful way.